Welcome, welcome to Palestine Deep Dive, and welcome to this our fourth program of our autumn or fall series. Uh, each time we take a close look, a deep dive into issues in the Middle East with a particular focus on uh, Israel Palestine. Uh, and uh, we'd like to hear from all of you out there. We, we have uh, viewers from across the world. Um, and um, when I've introduced our guests, we shall get underway. But please do send in some of your questions. Uh, we'll all be delighted to hear from you. Uh, this is a great opportunity to get your questions out there. I'm Mark Seddon. I was uh, Al Jazeera's first UN correspondent, Al Jazeera English, that is. Um, and I've worked for the United Nations. I used to be a speechwriter for Ban Ki-moon. And uh, I used to work also for a former president of the General Assembly. But never mind about all that, because today we are joined by Zaha Hassan and Daniel Levy. And uh, just beginning with Zaha, uh, Zaha is a human rights lawyer, a fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. And previously, she was the coordinator and senior legal advisor to the Palestinian negotiating team during Palestine's bid for United Nations membership. She's co-author with Daniel Levy. How about that? Both of them are here together with us. She's co-author with Daniel Levy, Halakir, and Mawa Masha of Breaking the Israel-Palestine Status Quo, which of course has given us the title for this week's show. And it argues for a rights-based approach to US engagement in peacekeeping in the region. <clears throat> Daniel, welcome to you. Um, Daniel is based in London, he serves as president of the US Middle East Project, which is a non-profit. He previously was director for Middle East and North Africa at the European Council on Foreign Relations, and before that, director of the New America Foundation's Middle East Task Force. Daniel has been an Israeli peace negotiator with the Palestinians under Israeli Prime Ministers Rabin and Barak, uh, and during the Oslo B and Taba talks, and worked as a senior advisor in the Israeli Prime Minister's office and to just and to the Justice Minister during the government of Ehud Barak. Well, welcome to you both. It's great to have you here. Um, welcome back to Palestine Deep Dive. My colleagues are sending out messages. Do get your questions. Uh, do get them uh, ready to send in. But Zaha, I wonder if I might just begin with you. Um, we've talked about this before. You've been writing about this. Today, the Washington Post had this a report uh, into essentially the Biden approach to uh, the peace process, the Middle East. Um, and I just wanted to, to ask you, really, I mean, it's sort of the, this, the Biden administration, we're, <clears throat> however months we're, we're into this, it, it sort of began by doing what a lot of US administrations do. So, oh, we'll push we'll push Israel, Palestine, we'll push it out of the way. Hopefully, you know, we won't get too bogged down. We've got other things to do. But of course, nine months on, and that's not the case. Um, the question is, though, where is this, where is the general trajectory? Where is the Biden administration going? And referring to that Washington Post piece today, I mean, is it in essence, very much similar to the Trump uh, administration's policy is just a more polite version. Where, where, where do you think it's going? Well, you're right to say, uh, first of all, thanks for having me, Mark. I'm really pleased to be with uh, Palestine Deep Dive. You guys are doing amazing work, and I'm, I'm really appreciative of the chance to talk about um, these issues with you and um, my partner in crime on the breaking the Israel-Palestine status quo. Um, Daniel Levy. So, um, yes, you're very right to say that this administration has tried its best to stay out of the Israel-Palestine peacemaking game. Um, it's probably looked back at previous administrations and seen that, you know, they haven't come out looking too good after uh, their engagements. Although I will say that the Obama administration and the Trump administrations went into um, Israel-Palestine peacemaking um, from the get-go. For Obama, um, you know, he had, uh, you know, assigned a peace envoy, George Mitchell, early on and, um, you know, called uh, President Abbas um, early on in his uh, first term. And then Donald Trump, I mean, even during his, um, you know, lead up to his his uh, election was talking about, uh, you know, how he could he could solve uh, the Middle East peace conundrum. 
and he dove right into it uh, when he uh, started his administration as well. So this Biden administration, however, has other agenda items that are of higher priority and of interest to them. And to some extent, you know, Palestine interferes with that agenda. And, and in other ways, it actually engaging on Israel-Palestine might undermine their ability to and they're you know around certain objectives they have um, in re-engaging um, the Iran nuclear deal. So, so it has tried to stay out of um, out of it in some ways. In some ways, they've they've been fully engaged um, on the level of you know Arab normalization. They have uh, been interested in deepening the current agreements and in seeing Egypt and Jordan um, further embrace um, Israel in the region and have more warm relations rather than the cold peace that they've they've had. Um, but for for Biden, um, you know, as it is for for many administrations, you as much as you want to stay out of the Middle East, the Middle East has a way of bringing you in, and we saw that in May with the um you know the escalations that you know began in in jerusalem with the attempted dispossession of palestinians and their from their homes in sheikh jarrah and the you know the violent rep repression in uh inside the al-aqsa mosque and you know in in front of the um the iron gate of the old city um and so, you know, you know, the, the administration couldn't very well, having billed itself as the administration that, you know, sees human rights as, um, you know, part and parcel of their foreign policy. It couldn't stand by for very long <laughs> without um, getting engaged um, and trying to, uh, trying to, if not, um, you know, stop uh, the the serious escalation that we saw in Gaza at least keep things um, uh, on, a, on a lower uh, intensity level. And I, I think that's going to be the game plan for this administration moving forward. They, they will continue to, I think, um, be unwilling to push the parties in serious ways, and in particular on the Israeli side. I don't think you're going to see this administration doing much in the way of um, you know, pushing Israel on settlement expansion or on um, some of their um, uh, activities uh, um, inside the West Bank or vis-a-vis -vis Gaza. I think they very much have sort of adopted uh, or embraced this, this idea of shrinking the conflict that we heard from um, mm. Israeli leaders um, and, and shrinking the conflict. If I may, Zaha, I mean, sure. shrinking the conflict, I mean, literally, as you were just saying yourself in May, um, that perhaps that was uh, an approach, maybe it was an unstated approach, but in reality, uh, it intensified. It became incredibly violent. The fighting um, uh, in Gaza and uh, the missile attacks on Israel, all of that um, suddenly exploded. And uh, on top of that, of course, we saw that the there have been a lot of, uh, you, we picked this up at Palestine Deep Dive, from, especially from a lot of young Palestinians. They were thinking, well, you know, also we've been promised elections by the Palestine author Palestinian Authority. Um, you know, now is our chance um, to, to, to give us a new, fresh leadership. Those elections didn't happen. So all these different pieces have kind of been moving because um, <laughs> you can't plan any of this, can you? So they ha it happens. So what does the Biden administration really, really make of all of this? Is it just going to sit back and, and hope to con that things get contained? But what possible solution does that provide? I mean, what they've said that they want to do is they do want to better the situation for Palestinians, which, you know, is the idea behind shrinking the conflict or confidence building measures or, you know, sort of this economic uh, peace kind of focus um, that's something that they're willing to engage on. And they understand that that's important because they think that, um, you know, bettering the day-to-day -day lives of Palestinians will, will stabilize the situation and, and um, avoid the kinds of escalations that, we, that we've seen in, in May. But the reality of the situation is, is that settlements are moving full steam ahead. Settler violence is um, on the rise. And we've seen, you know, IDF, uh, soldiers sort of standing by, allowing um, you know the the settlers to to ravage through Palestinian um, villages and um, 
you know, uh, uproot Palestinian olive trees, uh, making it uh, impossible for Palestinians to to live in their in their homes and towns. Um, and you know, so this de facto annexation of of Palestine's continuing, and I think Jerusalem is going to is going to continue to be sort of the flashpoint uh, around all of this because. Um, you know, the evictions of Palestinians uh, and, um, you know, the dispossession that's going on in Jerusalem is going to continue, given the fact that we have an Israeli government that's sort of, you know, made up of this trifecta with with the prime minister, the current prime minister, Bennett, as sort of trying to make nice with, um, you know, the, the um, forces inside of Israel that are interested in and moving forward with with annexation and with settlement construction, and then you have this the the, the outward looking face, which is the foreign minister, um, Lapid, who 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 makes it all look better for the rest of you know in front of the rest of the world um, by saying the right things and by lowering the temperature between Israel and um, and the U.S. and and other um, you know other Western countries, and then you have you know. Gantz, who's the defense minister, who who is the party that's relating to the Palestinians, because at this point the only the only relationship Israel um, sees from the Palestinians is one of maintaining that security cooperation, and I think for for the U.S. this is a, a welcome development and a and a reprieve from you know the 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 difficult relationship um, that Democrats had with um, mm. with um, uh, Bibi Netanyahu, but in mm. but ultimately, ultimately this isn't going to uh, prevent the kinds of escalations that we saw um, um, in May from occurring mm. again. If if I may, I'd like to bring in Daniel. Um, Daniel, thanks very much for for joining us. Um, I mean, looking at this, I mean, you just certainly before the uh, the presidential elections in the United States, you got the impression that yeah, you know, of course. Joe Biden, very much an old-style Democrat, a union guy and all the rest of it. It's going to be different from Trump. Well, that wouldn't be too difficult. Um, but there were interesting things happening within the Democratic Party itself. There was a kind of reset going on of sorts. Um, but we've just seen um, we've just seen this vote on the Iron Dome with, uh, I think it's an extra billion dollars uh, voted through for that, with very, very little opposition, if any. Um, also, you know, it's absolutely clear from... What Zaha was saying just earlier, I mean, there's been um, that the United States has moved to, to restore funding to UNRWA uh, and um, certainly the damage that was done by the Trump um, uh, defunding of, uh, of the UN and its agencies is being restored. But what do you make of that? That essentially, um, really, despite everything that's happened in, in America, that there's a, a greater realization, understanding of what's been going on in Israel, Palestine, especially amongst younger people, I think that really something must be done. But nothing seems to be happening at the top of the Democratic Party. So how do you work that one out? Well, as Zaha said, first, it's just a pleasure to be here with you, Mark, with Palestine Deep Dive and with Zaha. And it's nice to see her and to be able to do this together. Biden is, it's a different administration in very fundamental ways when it comes to the domestic American scene. On national security, on foreign policy, it's also different, but Biden is an American exceptionalist. He believes in the indispensable nation in those old school ways that I think have largely been disproven, and even more so, I would argue, than in the administration he served in as vice president, what is increasingly acknowledged, and the term is increasingly used, as the blob has a lockhold on foreign policy in this administration. And that comes with a number of things which we won't go into, not now at least, in terms of our focus and what you just uh, asked me. What you have on the Israel-Palestine question, as you've said, is some very interesting shifts inside the Democratic Party, inside the voting constituency, inside the political organizing and mobilizing of 
Democrat grassroots activities, and that feeds into Congress. There's a time lag, there's an intensity lag, but you do see it. You see it in many respects. Biden has probably shifted to the left on some areas, not on this one, very conspicuously and distinctly not on this one. Now, it's one thing, and, and, and Zahar, I think, was, was really helpful in, in pointing out that that the premise that incoming administrations automatically put this on the back burner isn't necessarily the case. Mitchell under the special envoy, George Mitchell under President Obama on day one, Trump coming in saying, we can do, we can revolutionize how you do Israel-Palestine. Now, I would not necessarily be against an administration actually coming in and saying, we are not going to prioritize this. We've got to give breathing space to the parties. This has its dynamics over there. We shouldn't put our thumb on the scales. But not putting your thumb on the scales means a lot of things. And you're putting your thumb very heavily on the scales if you continue to offer Israel cover at the United Nations Security Council with your veto. You're putting your thumb on the scales if you continue to provide the kind of assistance that you do to Israel not just security, financial, military, but also diplomatic. We have Secretary of State Blinken hosting the Israeli Foreign Minister, Lapid, and his Emirati counterpart, Abdullah bin Zayed, in Washington, D.C., as we're having this conversation. And they have said the normalization accords are great. Probably the only Trump legacy, maybe other than escalation with China, that they have embraced in this respect. The normalization deals were an appalling moment in American diplomatic history, these so-called Abraham Accords. They were by design intended to undermine peace efforts, to marginalize the Palestinians, to intensify an internal Israeli narrative of we get peace for peace, not land for peace. But the more you bash the Palestinians, the better Israel's international relations. Mm. So they have embraced all of those things. But, and, and here's where it is interesting, they do this in the context of a somewhat changing Democrat party. Now, I don't think the progressive caucus has reached a stage yet where it can define policy, but it can flex its muscles, as we saw over the social spending and infrastructure bill, a very important moment potentially in American political history. And what's fascinating is the American political reality, which I looked at for many years, has shifted. And that political reality revolved around an acronym called PEP, where you could be a liberal Democrat, but you were progressive except on Palestine, hence PEP. Mm -hmm. You were progressive on everything, but Palestinians had to be treated differently. Israel had to be treated differently. That has shifted. That has shifted because of the phenomenal organizing on the ground, mostly within the Democrat Party, of people who, maybe some of them are listening to us today, who have driven the Palestinian issue to the forefront of that progressive agenda. So you have this organizing around that issue. How far will it go? How far will they go to the mat on this issue? When? Over what specific policy areas, how far can it be taken? Those things are still unclear, but it's it's only going to be through the continued movement building and political organizing that one pushes the envelope and tests the hypothesis that Biden will have to be, and any future Democrat administration, will have to be responsive to a place that is not okay with business as usual on Israel Palestine. Daniel, you can see if you if you you know from an outsider's point of view, if looking in, you say, well, you know, this normalization has got to be a great thing. Look at these Gulf states, you know, they want to reach out to Israel in the same way that Egypt did once and Jordan did. But this has got to be a good progressive thing. But at the same time, what we're seeing actually on the ground is as Zaha was telling us, um, you know, the serial and gross abuse of human rights. And this is a human rights administration. This is an administration that, unlike the Trump administration, but it's what it says it is, the Trump, unlike the Trump administration, actually 
upholds international law it would like it would like to say that it's a great supporter of the united nations so how on one hand can you have this kind of this acceptance of this normalization which is just it seems to many to be as you were saying something of a veneer and yet the the human rights agenda which would surely demand the sort of actions that you both be talking about to ensure that human rights are protected and people don't have their land stolen and they're not imprisoned um, and they're not shot at with live ammunition, for instance. They talk the language of human rights. They talk the language of being a normative international actor, but they're absolutely selective in its applications, which is very much in keeping with uh, American foreign policy when, when it had the pretense of being a human rights actor. Sure, they're not Trumpian style, driving a coach and horses through the UN and human rights law, but they are flying a well-armed drone through it. And that well-armed, if that, you know, if it's America still with these very lax um, oversight regulations on who you can bomb with your unpersoned un drone and taking out civilians, then let's not, let's not feign surprise when that same America holds Israel to no standards of international law and human rights. When the crisis in May was going on, America prevented action, prevented even statements uh, coming from the UN Security Council. China just happened to be in the chair in May. And boy, did America not look serious as the one who is carrying the international torch of human rights when China was in the chair at the UN Security Council. But it, it's across the board. You know, you, you treat... Narendra Modi's India one way, and of course you you treat President Xi's China in a totally different way. You continue to sell arms to regimes who are terrible violators of human rights, not least in the Middle East, not least Saudi Arabia, the springs to mind, of course, and 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 one that we're talking about more centrally today as well. Mm. So uh, you don't even sell that in that case; you you give them. So yeah. so no, I don't accept the premise, but <clears throat> what I do accept is that they themselves have said, you know, this is their claim. So let's hold them to that. Yes, yes. People should hold them to well, that. Which you Daniel, can do. I, mean, I just said before we go back to Zaha, I mean, just as an observation and, and talking about the Democratic Party, I mean, it, you know, conversely here, the opposition party, main opposition party, the Labour Party, had a very, very strong resolution that was overwhelmingly passed at its conference. Um, which was extremely critical of uh, uh, of Israel, and in fact uh, said that Israel was an apartheid state. Now that that ran rather contrary to um, what the leadership of the Labour Party wants, but it was an interesting development, nonetheless. So things are clearly underway and happening. But look, Zaha, I wanted to come to you and and, and actually make mention of the um, Carnegie USMEP paper that you were both uh, contributors to. Um, and of course, which has given us the title for this event, um, because, you know, the other thing that uh, the, the I suppose the establishment, the international establishment, and to be fair, the United the, 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 the resolutions at the UN haven't changed the situation that essentially uh, the UN favours a two state solution, although most observers of the scene, most people who live in, in, in Israel, Palestine really don't think this is a serious prospect at all. Um, because they're holding on to this, what some people might say, something of a fig leaf, it's a, it's a useful thing because it means that you can be fairly inactive. You have come up with this um, new human rights-centered approach. I think your paper actually predated uh, the Biden administration, if I'm right. But I wonder, just in, if you could just briefly encapsulate what the argument is. How, how, how will this get... Um, get us to somewhere that we're nowhere near at the moment. I mean, you're right to say that, you know, the two-state solution has been used as the fig leaf. It's more than just a fig leaf. It's been cover for the ability of Israel to, on, on the one hand, say that it's, it's engaged in a peace process and on the other, continue to build Israeli settlements to the point where we've seen them you know, triple and quadruple during the course of um, <clears throat> the, the, the peace process years. 
And it's done that because it's been able to convince the US and other international actors that, you know, we need to deprioritize international law in order for Israel to have enough space to be able to negotiate with Palestinians on the two-state solution. So, you know, the, the U.S. provided Israel, as Daniel noted, with cover at the U.N., uh, preventing, uh, you know, the U.N. from coming down hard on Israeli settlement uh, construction and on all the policies that enable settlement construction to happen, which include Palestinian home evictions and revocations of Palestinian residency rights and and, and the whole panoply of uh, repressive tactics that Israel uses in order to dispossess, dispossess Palestinians and continue on with its settlement enterprises. So in order to get Israel to the negotiating table, there was sort of this uh, consensus, let's, let's not push Israel too hard on, on settlements because we don't want to upset, you know, um, the Israeli leaders uh, domestically while we're trying to get them to, to work with Palestinians on a political solution. But what in, inevitably happens because of that is that, you know, the settler um, forces in the, you know, inside Israel became emboldened because they realized there are no political repercussions for, uh, you know, settlement activity. They were given, you know, a free pass um, at places like the ICC to to be able to feel that you know there there isn't going to be any accountability. So what what's stopping them? And it pushed Israeli politics to the right. And we've mm. seen just how far Israel has gone to the point now where inside Israel we have um, a quasi constitutional law that says that only Jewish uh, people are entitled to self determination anywhere Israel. Um, extends its sovereignty. We've gotten to this point now. And so the the um, Carnegie USMEP paper basically argues that we need to stop this warped incentive uh, structure that we've created here in the U.S. with our U.S. policy and, and start to bring back international law and accountability so that we can change the political calculations, particularly of Israelis, um, so that they can you know, realize that there are going to be uh, ramifications around their continued settlement expansion. And we want to start to steer them back towards, you know, rights respecting behavior. And where do, you know, where do we do that? We do that at the UN by not providing that political cover anymore. We do that by not putting pressure on third states to back down from enforcing international law in their own jurisdictions. We do that by ensuring that our own weapons transfers aren't being misused by Israel to allow for uh, settlement expansion and for the violation of Palestinian human rights. So, so mm. we have our own um, house to get an order in the US to ensure that we're not a party to mm -hmm. what's happening on the ground, but we're, we also have an obligation to uh, ensure that, that uh, our policies aren't actually driving um, the Israel-Palestine uh, conflict, if I can still use the word conflict, it yes. seems very outdated. <laughs> if I might just come in there, I mean, I, I was when I, when I was at the United Nations and when I uh, worked for uh, the uh, Secretary General Ban Ki-moon, before I went to, to work for him and, and covered him, actually, I mean, he came into office, really, Israel-Palestine was not an issue he knew a great deal about. He was extremely cautious. Um, and that caution, you could argue, remained in his first term. His second term, things began to change, um, and he became rather more outspoken. Uh, and of course, more recently, of course, now he's left office. He's recently had that article published in the Financial Times saying the two-state solution is dead. I mean, I think that's a fair summary of what he was saying. Um, of course, you could argue that people can begin to get radical as they're about to leave office or when once they've left office, because, of course, President Obama did the same when he didn't use the veto. Um, but interestingly, as you're saying that, I'm thinking to myself, well, look, the Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, is now into his second term. He's not going to get another term. Um, he doesn't have to uh, sort of uh, curry favor with the Americans and the British, the French, the Chinese, the Russians. He can actually begin to be rather more bold. And so, I mean, between you and, and your other authors, you did come up with essentially a, a, a checklist, really, um, much of which is 
directed to the United Nations, it seemed to me, also to the U.S. administration. And I wonder if, you know, Daniel, could you could you just give us a, a brief idea of, of, in your report, you know, what do you think are the most important and achievable um, suggestions that you have collectively made? Yeah, and, and let let me say the following as a backdrop to to to, to responding to that, Mark. I mean, first of all and this is not unique to Secretary General Guterres, he would look at this, and, and he had you know, really okay politics on this issue coming into that job, okay? But he would look at this and say, <clears throat> there are all kinds of things I need to get done with the Americans. I can't do it without the Americans in my position as Secretary General. Mm -hmm. If I go toe-to-toe -to -toe with them on this, the rest of my agenda is finished. Um, and that's, you know, not me excusing his behavior, but that's the reality. It's that reality mm -hmm. that we need to try and address. That's from his perspective. Now look at it on the ground. The cumulative impact of America as a guarantor of Israeli impunity of rather than these violations of international law and human rights and these illegal settlements being costly, they are cost-free. <clears throat> the cumulative impact of US and international policies, as Zaha just said, is to embolden the very worst tendencies, the most undermining of peace, the most undermining of human rights, tendencies and policies on the Israeli side. That of course was on steroids, uh, under the Trump administration. But also, and this is really important to factor in, and, and it was touched on by, by both of you earlier, but also they're encouraging the worst tendencies on the Palestinian side. No elections, fine, don't have elections. Anyway, we probably wouldn't have liked the results. Mm. <laughs> Spend all the resources on security, repressing your own people, emerge increasingly as an authoritarian non-state if that's the best way to help israel manage the occupation be our guests so mm. it's this skewing of the playing field mm. in ways that are most undermining of human rights and peace that we're pushing back against and therefore all the things we're suggesting flow from what i've just said whether it's on the palestinian side remove the unreasonable quartet conditions that, uh, that were imposed on Hamas after they uh, had a successful election result 15 years ago. Palestinians should have elections, not just to the administrating body of the Palestinian Authority, but to the national institutions of the PLO. Do not indulge human rights violating Palestinian security forces. So there's a whole basket of things in that space. And then there's all the things which try and address this upside down incentive structure where you're incentivizing the worst Israeli behavior and you're exacerbating the asymmetry of power. So get accountability, end impunity, whether it's UN Security Council Resolution 2334, which, drew, which said draw a distinction in everything between Israel and the occupied territories. Well, Trump and Pompeo shoehorned the <clears throat> settlements the illegal settlements into Israel's bilateral deals, Israel's um, trade relations with America. So there's a whole set of things that you can do to chip away at that impunity because the premise, and it's important to draw this distinction, for me at least, the premise is not, I think, that Israel will be pressured into conceding to international law as it pertains to the Palestinians, to Palestinians gaining their freedom and their rights. What I do think is that with impunity and absent accountability, the question will never be asked in Israel in a serious way. The debate will never be seriously entered into as to whether we need to change our behavior, whether we should mm -hmm. really act differently. So I think that if you go after this incentive structure, you change the nature of the debate in Israel. I, I don't believe in maximum pressure anywhere. I think what, what has been done to Iran and its civilians is unconscionable. And I wouldn't like to see that anywhere else. But it's the impact on the Israeli political debate that impunity has had and therefore needs to be reversed 
that, that is absolutely central to this. And you know, I, I, I can walk you through more of the specific recommendations, but I think it's it's the the thinking behind it that, that I really wanted to share with you. Mm. Zaha, I mean, Daniel there was talking about incentives. Um, what what incentives can be offered to uh, Israeli administrations? I mean, just to, before you come inside, just to be clear, most of my, it's it's incentives for changing your behaviour because disincentives are being put on the table. It's really more about disincentives. Israel has all the juicy carrots already. Right. So, okay. Well. Well. I, yeah. Yeah. Well. Interesting. I mean, because you know, one of I mean, there, it, and people, if they haven't read this uh, uh, this paper, they really should do because it's concise and and you know. I, Having, having read lots of these papers in the past, for me it was impressive because there was a, there was a, an action list, a checklist of, of of a lot of things that just seemed axiomatic and and logical and right and sensible, uh, things that people have been arguing for for a very long time, but also lots of practical, um, uh, lots of practical uh, advice and demands, and um, so people really should get out there and get a copy of it. But I was going to ask you about, uh, you know, the, some of the, because I mean, one of the recommendations is that the United States should return its embassy back to Tel Aviv. It shouldn't be in Jerusalem. But what are the prospects of these things actually happening? Even the most simple things, really, are just a, a, a just a reversal of some of the Trumpian extremities, if you like, Zahab. In, you know, we're talking about incentives and disincentives. If, if if the Biden administration won't even insist on something like that, what are the prospects of it really putting some serious incentives or disincentives Israel Israel's way? Daniel's right. We've given um, a lot of carrots to to Israel right right now. So the the idea is to um, disincentivize or yeah. or put some strings on the things that Israel does um, uh, get from the U.S. Um, so, uh, you know, obviously the, an easy ask right now of, of this administration would be to reverse a lot of the egregious things that the Trump administration did that were really, um, you know, against international law. Um, and unfortunately, on a lot of those items, we have not seen uh, much action from the Biden administration. Uh, one of the things that they've talked about was, um, you know, moving, uh, opening up, uh, reopening the consulate in, in East Jerusalem, which is something that we um, called for. But we also called for that to be um, uh, understood as the future uh, embassy to the Palestinians, um, because we recognize in the paper that, um, you know, that uh, the idea that the U.S. would would uh, uh, move the embassy to Israel back to Tel Aviv it was probably not going to happen. And in fact, Biden said he would not do that during his campaign um, uh, campaigning. But if there is going to be a solution in which Palestinians and Israelis share Jerusalem, then there should be a Palestinian um, mm. a Palestinian mm. capital in Jerusalem and and uh, consistent with international law, which is that East Jerusalem is occupied territory, that the U.S. Uh, consulate should re reopen. And we have heard, um, you know, the administration talk about reopening and promising to reopen the consulate in East Jerusalem. But we've also heard very clearly, even in the last week, um, you know, various Israeli officials saying, absolutely, that's not going to happen. It needs our permission and we're not going to give it. And, and this is coming from a country that's, you know, the recipient of $3.8 billion a year in U.S. free money and is going to get another billion saying this to to the U.S. So the question is, like, exactly what, you know, what should the U.S. be doing when it um, has a friend that, that doesn't feel um, inclined to, you know, to take advice or <laughs> to to accept recommendations. You have to get a little bit tougher if you mean what you say. Um, and so, you know, it, we'll have to see whether or not the the consulate uh, reopens that serves Palestinians has historically served Palestinians uh, if that gets reopened. But that's really not, um, you know, that's not though it has some symbolic importance to, to Palestinians and some practical importance um, uh, in terms of being able to, you know, to get your paperwork done at the U.S. Embassy. Um, 
or the U.S. consulate, um, there the the really more important issue is Palestinian presence in Jerusalem and the fact that it's so threatened. And we haven't seen uh, a Biden administration come out strongly about Palestinian dispossession in East Jerusalem. Um, you know, we have heard them sort of recommend to Israel, you know, you should find a solution <laughs> that um, allows, you know, the families to stay, um, but, but really not taking a real position on, um, you know, Palestinian uh, dispossession in, in, in East Jerusalem, mm -hmm. which we know isn't, isn't accidental. You know, it's part of a, a longstanding plan for Israel to change the demographics of the city in a way that um, ensures uh, Jewish dominance um, and maintains the entirety of Jerusalem under Israeli sovereignty. So this administration, just as we said from the very top of this program, is not wanting to get into any kind of battle with Israel um, over these very, you know, what should be very simple things that, that uh, the Trump administration changed. Um, but the Biden administration has yet to to reverse, and even so, even things uh, again like the customs labeling. I think Daniel mentioned that um, you know the Trump administration allowed for products in the West Bank and Area C, which is under Israeli security and, and administrative control, to be labeled as made in Israel. This administration has yet to reverse something like that, which should be, again, something easy. It can be done without Congress. <laughs> you know, you just uh, need to change the regulations back. Then, Zaha, I'm sorry? What is, what is causing this blockage? Well, why is there no action on these very simple things that would actually, you know, would actually demonstrate that America is doing something, even if it's not a great deal? I mean, surely it would want to prove to its... European allies, you know, that it's doing something. You know, I think it the administration that? really would like to do these things. Like, I believe that right now they have a battle in Congress on these other very important agenda items yeah. around the budget and around, um, you know, social welfare um, provisions that the uh, Democratic Party wants to see get passed. Every time they, they bring up an issue related to Israel, it becomes a football between the Republicans and the Democrats, and the Republicans are attempting to make the Democrats look like they're anti-Israel. Um, and so there's this real concerted effort just to not deal with these things, at least not for now. Like, I do believe that this administration does want to reverse some of these things um, that the Trump administration pushed forward, but I just think um, the timing for them right now is terrible and they don't wanna have mm. these fights. But honestly, I don't know when the timing is going to be good because the Republicans are always going to wanna to paint the Democrats as the anti-Israel party. I think especially under President Trump, they learned that this was a good, this was a good winning thing for them to, uh, that, that puts the, de the Democrats on the defensive and um, you know, makes them um, you know, a more um, attractive party to um to israel and so um you know this is this is something that's going to have that the that this administration is going to have to contend with but it's going to complicate um even even the very sim most simple efforts that they they are, are willing to take to um to reset u.s policy in israel palestine C can mm. i add to that mark of course thank you um so i i, I agree with all of that uh, I would add to the mix that it's just not important enough to them. And on the other side of the ledger is <clears throat> a politics around Israel, as Zahar has said, in the US, where it can still be anywhere on the spectrum from irksome and time consuming to actually annoying, costly uh, to to do things that the Israeli government and its supporters are going to go after you for. And on the other side of the ledger is an Israeli government that is saying, go easy on us. We will do good things. We want to try. We're not Netanyahu. You don't want to see him come back, right? Because we're really fragile. We've got this terribly fragile coalition and an Israeli government that says, we want to get Iran done, right? You don't, we're, we're behaving ourselves on Iran. 
we're not we're not kind of mobilizing your own Congress against you on your mm. Iraq talks. So not important. Oh, oh, and by the way, not insignificant. You have a Palestinian leadership that goes to the UN General Assembly and is Mr. Resistance and comes home and is the subcontractor to shrinking the conflict collaboration with the Israelis on the Bennett, Lapid, Gantz agenda. He meets with Gantz. He says, I'd really like to meet Bennett and the other far right minister or one of the other far right ministers, Ayelet Shaked. She says, no, thank you. Uh, and goes further than that. So that's another problem. How do you change that? You shift the cost benefit calculation of the administration mm -hmm. that they mm -hmm. can't ignore it. And that precisely goes back to, look, we put out a report. We, we did a policy wonk piece of this. You know, we spoke, we gave the, the narrative, we gave the explanation, we gave what the policies need to look like. Other people are doing phenomenal organizing movement building yeah, people look at something very real. Look at what happened in New York's 16th congressional district in a Democrat primary where one of the biggest carriers of water for Israel in the Democratic Party in Congress, Elliot Engel, loses a primary to Jamal Bowman. You know, that's those are the things that slowly shift the politics and that slowly shifts the calculation. It's not yeah. important enough for them. Well, it has to be because enough of your members are saying you don't get a free pass on this. Well, Daniel, as you're saying that, I'm I'm also thinking, you know, that sometimes, you know, we get caught up with the, you know, the the, the heavy duty stuff. You know, it's too too complex. It's too complicated. It's difficult. It's intractable. And yet, you know, the simple arguments are sometimes not deployed. I mean, for instance, three and a half billion a year this extra billion that Zaha just mentioned for the Iron Dome, four and a half billion, um, you know, it's uh, it's a gift. There's no there's no attachments to it. Um, you know, if it was made much more apparent to Americans that this, these vast treasures were being given away as they've been squandered in Afghanistan, arguably, as well, and they could be spent on better things, or at least if you're going to be giving lots of money away, you could, as you've both been saying, say, well, you know, there are, there are certain strings attached. You don't use this to do X, Y, and Z. Why can't some of those more simple arguments be used, do you think? Zaha, I'll ask you. <laughs> That's a great question. I've been asking that question for, for some time, you know. It seems like, but, you know, I, I think there is more... If anything has happened uh, during the Trump administration and all of the events around um, the killing of George Floyd, it was to to draw attention to the ways in which, you know, domestic policy and foreign policy are connected and not just on the level of like the way in which providing billions of dollars to a foreign country deprives people at home from certain social welfare uh, initiatives and um, healthcare and, and any other myriad other issues that we haven't been able to fund uh, from because of a lack of, of money for that or lack of a budget for that. But besides the, just the financial costs, it's, it's the ways in which our hyper-militarized police force has gotten training over it uh, abroad with Israel or how we've been exchanging um, tactics between the, our two countries and how that has impacted us domestically at home and how it has implicated us abroad in human rights abuses. And there's a growing realization that, you know, this is not, this is not good for America. It's not a good for America in terms of its reputation abroad. It's not good for America in terms of its relationship and its social contract with its own people. And so this, I think, is, is germinating. It's, it's, it's not just a progressive um, sort of read. It's also now entering into sort of the, the centrist Democrat discourse as well. And so we just have to, you know, wait and see as to how, um, you know, how it will grow. For sure, there's, you know, growing conversations around, you know, the extent of the security ex uh, assistance we provide Israel. Is it appropriate? 
Um, we aren't to the level yet. We don't have the 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 numbers um, to to make a change on that. But the conversation that was was never happening <laughs> is now mm -hmm. starting to happen. We're having more conversations about um, you know conditionality than we've ever had when it comes to Israel. I mean, we condition aid everywhere. We provide aid, and uh, but not not with Israel. In fact, it's you know it's heresy to to suggest, but it's it's not. It's not so anymore. And like we're able to have these conversations. It's just going to take time. And as Daniel noted, it's going to take movement building to help continue this. And I think one thing that we haven't mentioned when we were talking about the Iron Dome is that, you know, um, there was this there was the, those uh, members of Congress that were, uh, you know, uh, against the Iron Dome. And there was but we did see that Senator Sanders, for example, supported it. But he felt compelled, and and Chuck Schumer, um, Senator Chuck Schumer, felt compelled to to you know lobby his colleague Senator Sanders to make sure that he voted in favor of Iron Dome when he when it looked like he may not, and um, he because he wanted to maintain that 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 sense that Democrats were we were, were very pro-Israel, and if Senator Sanders stood apart, then that would be a problem. So. Senator Sanders was able to use the opportunity to try to get more aid for for Gaza, uh, saying mm -hmm. and, uh, that, that he had gotten a promise or a commitment of, of working towards a billion dollars in assistance to Gaza for reconstruction. So so it isn't business as usual completely. There there are mm -hmm. some glimmers that, you know, um, there's some progressive power being felt and that the, the trend is towards more accountability the trend the trend is more towards questioning exactly you know what are we getting for for what we're spending um and, with israel and and, and, and other Zaha, countries as well in the Middle East. imagine Zaha, you know, you know for, if you're palestinian this is you know yet more time you've got to wait and there's no time to wait but at the same time essentially right. we're both really talking about if what is in effect a, an enormous burden you know as afghanistan was a, a burden so israel is a burden especially if nothing is changing and and the, and uh, you're being embarrassed by this burden um and uh, i curiously as you were talking uh, just then i was thinking about back actually to the fall of dnb and food in vietnam when the vietnamese looked to america as a country that had also thrown off a colonial yoke um and the Viet Cong presumed and actually they were right to begin with that america would not be for french colonialism and would be for a free vietnam and, and the question, I suppose, for America, the bigger question is, does it want to be seen on the right side of history again? Is it, would it Could it court popularity in the global south by being an anti-colonial power again, given its own particular history? I mean, it's a, it's a bit out there, that question, but what do you think of that, Zaha? You know, I mean, that's that goes back to this, uh, you know, this idea of the way in which our foreign policy and domestic policies are start. They're starting to make, making connections between them. And I think um, I don't think we're there yet <laughs> working out our our own uh, uh, colonial past in the U.S. and our own, um, you know, sins, sins of slavery and all of all that came following that. So I, I don't have I don't hold much uh, hope that we're going to ha you know have this epiphany that we realize okay we're on the wrong side of the whole Israel Palestine <laughs> conflict anytime soon particularly given the fact um, that we have um, our campaign finance situation the way we have it in which we become so so dependent on um, you know big donor money for elections and and this is what's driving a lot of the reluctance in the democratic party to really mm. rethink our policies with respect to um, support for israel as it's you know entrenching um you know occupation and apartheid da daniel i mean unfortunately we are sadly running out of time so i think i'll come to you if i may uh finally really and um and say you know you've had this history as a negotiator you've been involved in peace negotiations you've, you've seen what can what is possible and what isn't um and also i i guess you've looked at the example of um south africa and how at the uh, end of apartheid there was a truth and reconciliation commission and i'm just wondering you know just thinking sort of um thinking out of the box a bit you know is there a possibility of perhaps having the elders convene a kind of human rights 
Truth and Reconciliation Commission to really give this a kit, but push it right up there and centre it around the United Nations, perhaps. But have it, you know, this is this is uh, a, a new approach. We're 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 we we're taking the basis of what you've all committed to this paper, this Carnegie paper, but you're taking it beyond that and you're looking at this something perhaps fronted by respected elder statesmen and women. What about something along those lines? I'll give you the, the one word answer and then I'll, I'll unpack it. That was a two word. <laughs> not, not, not really. Um, and I say that because this is about relationships of power. So is that a, a nice contribution that can be used to, again, just keep pushing that shift in narrative? Yes. But this really is about shifting relations of power. I think you were super helpful earlier, Mark, when you said, with all its complexity, actually, doesn't this come down to a few quite simple propositions? And so, yeah, I, I think that's right. And I would demystify it. And part of demystifying it is in telling people it's really simple. If Israel pays no cost or consequence, for its policies towards the Palestinians. And if inside Israel, this is an incredibly, um, you know, an issue that, that will rip the country asunder, then don't be surprised if Israelis who were told for decades, or, you, you know, whatever else you think about the Palestinians, you can't keep doing this because you won't get away with it. And their lived experiences, mm -hmm. oh boy, gotten away with it. And we've never been in such good international standing in, in certain respects regional relations, those normalization deals, you know, startup nation, all this palaver. Um, so that's one really simple proposition, unless and until that changes. Another really simple proposition is what we've been discussing, which is unfortunately, no, it's not costly to the US. You know, the 4 billion is, is you know, digestible, um, but also the hit to America's reputation is digestible. Uh, partly because uh, th there's not enough mobilization around this issue, um, partly because it's this kind of hypocrisy is, is, is what we expect from America, but also because Americans will need to hold their own government to that standard. And this is, again, let's demystify. You know, as Zaha just said, you know, how does it work? You said earlier, can't we use these arguments? And yes, we can, and they're phenomenal arguments. But if on the other side, elected officials have some really good reasons not to listen to those arguments, that are more often than not an awful lot to do with how their campaigns are funded. This isn't unique to the Israel issue. Look at big issues around Big Pharma. Look at issues around the NRA and gun control. So if you're given some 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 green dollar bill issues, why not to listen to that? And that's that's one of the terrains on which this will have to be fought. Therefore, uh, and Israel is susceptible to pressure. I, I I do want to insist on this: the fact that those families in those homes in Sheikh Jarrah have not been evicted, pressure. Mm -hmm. The fact that Khan al-Akhmar, for now at least, is still standing, pressure on Israel. And, you know, you mentioned, Zaha, this episode between Sanders and Schumer. And, and Sanders took the vote, sent the letter to Schumer, got the agreement from Schumer that there will be extra funding for Gaza. What I think was brilliant in that by Senator Sanders is, and, and these are the kinds of things that can shift the date. You're showing the American public, you as taxpayers are now paying for the cover for the military that is undertaking the destruction and you're paying to reconstruct after that destruction. How yeah. crazy is this? Can yeah. we really yeah. countenance it? So, you know, keep, you know, keep exposing the craziness, keep doing the movement building. That's Thank you, Daniel. That's very interesting because this cycle, cycle of uh, build and destroy, build and destroy has been going on for so long um, and uh, it was yes. Your point about uh, Senator Sanders is very is, is very very well made because um, you know that really does bring it starkly to the attention of people that, that America American taxpayers are somehow 
funding this cycle of destruction and death and it's simply not right look thank you very much daniel levy zaha hassan thank you both very very much for being our guest today at uh, palestine deep dive um if you haven't and thank you to all of you who joined us by the way on this program um if you haven't read the report um it's uh, we have it there uh, you should be able to see it at, at wwr look there it is um, the <laughs> Carnegie Endowment org, org www.carnegieendowment.org, uh, breaking Israel-Palestine status quo. Um, so um, please uh, join us again next time and um, join me in thanking our great guests. Uh, thank you very much, Daniel. Thank you, Zaha. And we hope to have you on again. Thank you. Thank you.